And I'm going to invite you to open your Bible, if you have one, to Luke chapter 12, or you can just Google. It's called the Parable of the Rich Fool. And if you Google Parable of the Rich Fool, the passage will come up. So the title of our message today, we're going to call it Under the Influence of Money. Under the Influence of Money. I know none of us can relate to a topic like money, but we're going to do our best to lean into this topic. None of us struggle with money. I understand that. None of us worry about money. But let's do our best to try to relate to a passage like this. So, kids, the last time, and big people, the last time uh, we had a family service here at RBC, Pastor John introduced us to a friend. That friend's name was Cleo. Cleo was a new Christian, and when we met Cleo, she, uh, he was asking questions about the faith and asking questions about one of the Psalms that John was preaching about. Well, I actually met Cleo downtown at Ballard Park this week, and we had a conversation. Cleo said, Pastor Chuck, what are you preaching on this week? I said, Luke chapter 12, I'm doing the parable of the fool, the rich fool. And Cleo began to ask me questions about that. Imagine that, Pastor John, it's me question. I got a chance to answer Cleo's questions. So I thought what we would do this morning is I would share three or four questions that Cleo asked me and how this passage would address Cleo's questions or concerns. And the first question that Cleo asked is probably one that we always want to start with in a text, and it's just this. What is the story about? What is this parable of the rich fool about? Well, in the story, Jesus is warning people about being under the influence of money. Now, the language here is very intentional, very important, under the influence of money. And I'll work back to this in a minute. So I asked Cleo to try to imagine uh, what the white witch would look like in C.S. Lewis's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's the white witch. She's the queen of Narnia, and she has an enchant- a certain spell or enchantment over Narnia. It's always winter there, but it's never Christmas, and it appears like the entire land and all the people serve the white witch. And early in the story, of course, the four siblings go through a wardrobe, they find themselves in Narnia, and if you know the story, one of those siblings, Edmund, falls under a certain enchantment of the white witch. She feeds him Turkish delight, Uh, Edmund gets an insatiable appetite for this dessert, he's captivated by her power, he's kind of enchanted by her, he almost becomes a secret servant of the white witch. And it's not just Edmund, it's everybody has a problem here under the influence of the witch. Edmund wants to be on the winning side. He wants to be on the the, the side that is supposedly going to have victory in the end. And of course, at the end of the story, Aslan, the king, atones for the transgression of Edmund. He's brought back into the fold. But throughout the story, there's this narrative of being under the influence of the white witch. In the same way, Edmund falls under the spell of the witch of Narnia, We can fall under the spell of things in this world, where they start to control us. We secretly serve them. We think way more of them than maybe we should think. Today's story, both with the man that asked Jesus, can you tell my brother to divide the inheritance, and the parable of the rich fool is a warning not to fall under the spell of money. Thinking money can save us, thinking it can rescue us, thinking it's everything that we need. Now, let me just give you a thought. I mentioned the language is important, not to fall under the influence of money. So we're not talking about some things here. Number one, there's really nothing wrong with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of money. 
uh, Jesus here is not condoning people that have money. It's an easy move to read a passage like this and say, well, anybody that has really big barns or tears them down and puts more in the barns is probably not right with God. That'd be a mistake to read the passage this way. We don't want to assume that it's a sin to be rich. We don't want to assume it's a sin that people might have a lot of things. We have a lot of rich people in Scripture. We need to remember this. Moses, Abraham, Jabez, Caleb, David, Solomon, Gaius, Lydia, Jason and Thessalonica, Philemon, book of the Bible was written to him. I think I've pointed out in the past that if you read the book of Job, you get two ideas about Job, both of which are true at the same time. Number one, Job possibly was the richest person in the land. He at least was up there. And number two, in the same paragraph, he's called what? He's called the most righteous in the land. He's the richest and the most righteous at the same time. So we want to be careful. Riches can provide a certain snare. They can provide a certain temptation, as can poverty. But we don't want to assume it's a sin to have a lot of money. That would be a mistake to read the passage this way. The other way people read this passage and maybe make a mistake is to believe that it's wrong to plan and invest in things like that. Because that's what the man does. The man in the parable has a bumper crop. It's a really good year. It's a year that he doesn't expect. So he tears down the barns. He saves. He invests. He does a lot of things that are in the direction of planning. And if we're not careful, we're going to think that Jesus is condemning planning here. But he can't be doing that either. There are too many passages in Scripture where not only is planning looked upon favorably, we're commanded to plan. I mean, the proverb writer says, learn from the ant. The ant works real hard, and then what does the ant do? The ant stockpiles for a rainy day. It's got to mean something. Or how about the parable of the talents? Where there are a couple of individuals that planned and invested, they are rewarded by the master. But the one that doesn't plan and invest is actually condemned by the master. And then we have passages like this. If you read Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about money. As much to say about money as Proverbs has. It says, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. What does that mean? Ship your grain across seas. In other words, invest your grain. Don't eat it all there. Don't just hand it out to everybody in front of you. Invest in the economy in some way, shape, or form, and some investment will return. It's talking about some kind of investment there. Invest in seven ventures, yea, eight. You do not know if a disaster will come upon the land. What is Ecclesiastes telling us there? It's telling us to diversify your investments. What's the old language? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. And so the Bible has a lot to say about investing. It even has a lot to say about diversifying our investments. So there's nothing wrong if you're successful in your industry. And there's nothing wrong with planning and saving, investing and things like that. What is the problem here is this. That the individuals in question are falling under the influence of money. And so let me give you three words that might come up in this passage. One of them comes up, but there's three ideas in the passage. And this is what we're being warned against. The first one is the word consumerism. It's not in the passage, but the idea is there. Consumerism. Look at verse, uh, well, look at the text. Verse chapter 12. Someone in the crowd says to him, teacher... Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? 
take care, be on your guard against covetousness. And then he tells the story of the rich fool. And look at what the rich fool says in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And then God says, you fool. That's consumerism. What is consumerism? Listen, congregation. Consumerism is when we make money our functional savior. Now, I'm using the word functional carefully here because I don't know any Christian that would ever say, money's my savior. If you go up to any Christian and say, who's your savior? They're going to say Jesus. We all say Jesus. That's what makes us Christians. But it's possible to have a functional savior. We say one thing with our mouths, but another thing with our hearts and another thing with our hands and even our checkbook. Money here is the functional savior. Look at what he says. What's going to bring him happiness? What's going to bring him joy? What's going to take care of him on his down day? Ah, verse 19. Eat, relax, be merry. You have ample goods laid up for you. You're all taken care of. Consumerism means that people are happy to the extent that they feel like they have enough money and have enough possessions. And as long as we have enough money and enough possessions, everything will be okay. Money is what rescues us from despair. Money is what lifts us up on a bad day. Money is what makes us feel like we're going to live forever. All of that falls under this idea of consumerism. I'm reminded of the 1991 movie Mobsters, where Arnold Rothstein says to Lucky Luciano, what's the secret to America? And of course, what does Rothstein say? You know the movie? Am I the only one? Money, Charlie. Money is everything. (laughs) And that's how some of us may feel. We feel like money is that which we look to when we get in trouble. How do we know if money is our functional savior? I think there's a lot of tests we could do. I'll give you the one I throw in my own heart. When I find myself in despair or in trouble or whatever it is, just feel like things are falling apart, What's your first move? Is our first move to plot and plan and think about how to get more money, how to protect money? Or is our first move maybe to pray and seek God on these matters? What our first move in might be an indication of what our functional Savior actually is. Now, the second word we want to identify is the word covetousness. All this is under the influence. Covetousness. Covetousness is we desire something or someone more than God's will. Desiring something more than God's will. And that's what happens here in verse 15. Jesus said, and we're going to get back to the man who asked about the inheritance in a minute. Don't forget him. Jesus said, take care, be on your guard against covetousness. Covetousness is a really hard word to define. It's one of those where we all know what it is, but when you actually try to place a definition on it, I think it's harder than it looks. So think about a bullseye for a minute. At the, I'm going to go from the outer bullseye to the inner bullseye. What is covetous? On the outer bullseye, covetousness is simply a strong desire. You have a strong desire for something. You really want that car, or you really want that job, or you really want to get into this or that program. It's a really strong desire. You really want that person to fall in love with you so you can marry them. <laughs> Things like that. It's a strong desire. 
But covetousness is more than just a strong desire. You can have a strong desire, and that doesn't mean anything's wrong with that. I mean, look, Jabez had a strong desire in the Old Testament for more land. Yet it was regarded to be a God-honoring thing. Not all those desires are God-honoring, but his apparently was. Hannah really, really had a strong desire for a child. Does that mean she was coveting a child? No. She had a strong desire. You can have a strong desire for something, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's coveting that thing. So we have to be careful here. Now, if we go a little more into the bullseye, the second ring, maybe we would say covetousness is desiring things that, are, that God has put off limits. We might think of it in that sense. Um, but again, I'm not so sure that's really, you know, desiring things that God has said no to. But I can think of times in Scripture, people have strong desires and God says no, and then he comes back and actually answers that prayer. So I'm not sure that's covetousness definition very good. I think when you get to the center of the bullseye of covetousness, it's something along these lines. Covetousness is when we love, we love something more than the will of God. Loving something more than the will of God. Uh, desiring something more than the will of God. Remember the first commandment, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then the last one, the tenth says what? You shall not covet. The first and the tenth are virtual synonyms. It's a wreath. What does it mean to covet? It means to have other gods before the true and living God. Uh, That's why the passage that John was referring to, covetousness is idolatry, right? Loving something more than the will of God. That's what, that's what covetousness is. And by the way, this is how you make sense of passages that say things like this. That say, anyone does not hate his mother and his father cannot be my disciple. I mean, does anybody really supposed to hate their mother and their father? No, that would violate one of the other commandments. What it's a warning against is loving anything in this world more than God. Or desiring anything in this world more than the will of God. I would simply say this, if you want a car, there's no problem with that. We just don't want to love that more than the will of God. If you want to be successful in business, great. We should all want to be successful in business. We just shouldn't love and desire those things more than God's will. That's when we find ourselves on the wrong side of the parable here. The last word I want to identify is the word greed. What is greed? Greed is when we feel like we won't be content unless we have more, right? Now, I got to do the American thing here because that's what every pastor does. Here it goes. The average American home, you know how many items are in the average American home? I would have got this wrong if you want. 300,000. Children make up, U.S. children make up 3.7 children on the planet and yet have 47% of all the toys. Average American, average American throws away 65 pounds of clothes each year. Oh, this is a good one here. Uh, average time that somebody looks for lost things. You know what it is? In a lifetime, uh, about 3,600 hours looking for lost things. I'm sure mine is higher. You know, Where, Who took my keys? You know, Where is my wallet? Did the dog eat my... I don't know, bagel, you know, I mean, uh, you're looking around. By the way, that's 153 days you and I spend looking for lost things. On average, right, we lose like nine things a day, 
That's on average. Now, by the way, my point is not to guilt all of us Americans here. My point is to ask a much more probing question, something along these lines. How is it that we have so much stuff and we're still so miserable? That's the question I've been thinking about. I'm not going to guilt anybody for having stuff. I'm not going to guilt you for having stuff any more than guilting Abraham for having stuff. But how is it that we can have that much stuff and still feel like we need so much more? Have that much stuff and still be miserable? I don't know of a society that has ever had this much stuff and ever been this much in despair and struggle with anxiety as much as we do. Maybe something's wrong with the way we view money. Maybe something's wrong with the way we view God. Jesus here, of course, is describing suffering. And he's describing suffering, by the way, uh, rather, uh, greed. Greed in the face of suffering. Greed in the face of suffering. Uh, who can, number two, second question that uh, Cleo asked me is, who, who can fall under the influence of money? Is there a certain kind of person that falls under the influence of money? Well, you're just going to have to hang with me for my answer for this one that, that I think the passage gives us. The answer, of course, is anybody. And so I want to give you two points, two things to think about, okay? And the first one is this. Rich people worry about money. Does that surprise you? Rich people worry about money. Who's worrying about money in the passage? It's a rich person. Rich people stay up at night and worry about money. They worry about losing things. When they have their money secure, they'll find ways invent ways to worry about money. You know who the richest man in Scripture is? Probably Solomon. Solomon was loaded. Solomon had so much money that he probably could not spend it in ten lifetimes. His money was secure. It was secured by, at the time, what would be a first world military. And it was diversified. He had gold. He had houses. He had lands. He had foreign investments. There is no way humanly possible Solomon was ever going to lose his money. If ever there was somebody that you think would not worry about money, it was Solomon. You know what kept him up at night? Worrying about his money. You know what his chief worry was? What are my kids going to do with it when I die? Read Ecclesiastes, it's there. In other words, if you're a really rich person, even if you can secure your money, you'll find new creative inventing ways to worry about money. The problem is not money. The problem, of course, is our hearts. Rich people worry about money. They stay up at night. They think about it. But I got a second point for you, maybe something that we're not in the passage yet, and it's this. Guess who else worries about money? Yeah, poor people worry about money. That's what the next passage is about that we didn't read. starts in verse 22. The people are poor. They don't know where they're going to get their food. They don't know where they're closing. And what are they doing? It's keeping them up at night. They're worrying about it. They live paycheck to paycheck. They wonder where they're going to get their clothes. You know, there's a law in the Old Testament and in the ancient world that says you had to pay day laborers at the end of the day because they didn't have enough money to float themselves for the whole week. They couldn't wait for a week, you know, to get the paycheck or the pay at the end. These people have real problems. Rich people worry about money. Poor people worry about money. What does that tell us? Everybody worries about money. The rich, the poor, side by side, it's a universal worry. And by the way, everybody in between. We worry that we don't have enough. We worry we're going to lose what we have. What if I lose my job? What if my roof leaks and I need to fix it? 
What if there's a bear market? What if I don't have enough for retirement? What if my grandchildren cannot make ends meet? It becomes a universal worry. Worry, money, worrying about money is to me, I think of it in our culture like a sore tooth. Sometimes that tooth is really sore. I mean, you really can't sleep. But the ache is always there. That's how money is to most of us, if not all of us. This constant worry. It's like a child that digs a hole at the beach and, you know, pulls all the water out. And what happens? Water immediately comes and fills that hole back up. That's what happens. We clear out a financial problem and all of a sudden we're worried about something else. So what are some things, Cleo asked, continue to talk with Cleo, what are, what are some things that bring us under the spell of money? I mean, if, if, if Jesus is talking about not being under the influence of money and we all can fall under the influence of money, what are some things that move us in the direction of falling under the influence of money? Well, let me just give you a couple of thoughts, okay? Here from the passage. The first one is this. Even a legitimate gripe can send us down the wrong road. This is important, I think, for Christians to think about. Even a legitimate gripe can push you towards greed, covetousness, and consumerism. Sometimes you're right, but you have to be careful how you respond. Let's think about what Jesus says here. Here's the drama. Jesus here is teaching on persecution. And there's somebody who wants to go off topic. No problem. People go off topic with Jesus all the time. So there Jesus is standing there. It tells us people are pressing upon him. That means they're climbing on each other trying to just see Jesus. And someone from the back says, Jesus, tell my brother to share the inheritance. Jesus doesn't see the man, we don't think. We're not sure if the brother is in the crowd. Does he expect Jesus to go find the brother? We don't know. But Jesus' first reaction, he hears something in that tone that concerns him. Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Watch out for covetousness. Watch out for covetousness. Now let me just back up and say, we have every reason to believe this man has a legitimate gripe. I mean, the Old Testament's very clear on this, or the Jewish law was. Two-thirds to the elder, one-third to the younger, if he's the older brother, he deserves two-thirds. If he's the younger, it's one-third. And don't forget, you've got all the land bound up in this. If you're a Jewish person in the ancient world, you can't just say things like, ah, sell off mine and give it away. The land is bound up in the Jewish inheritances. People that fight for their land in the courts, that's considered a very righteous thing. It was with Caleb, the daughters of Zelophehad. In the book of Judges, you can see this. So all this stuff is tied up. We're not talking about Golem here. We're not talking about Achan. We're not talking about somebody that wears covetousness out here on their their lapel or on their sleeve. And Jesus here is not lacking sympathy for somebody that has a real problem. Nor does Jesus say, you should just drop this case. Perhaps the man should pursue the case. In fact, Jesus says, take it to another rabbi. It's probably a very worthy case. But the point Jesus is making is this. You can have a very legitimate gripe, and that can push you down the road of covetousness and greed if you're not careful. How do we respond when we feel like we've been wronged? How do we respond when we feel like somebody's taking something from us unjustly? And that's what we have to be careful about. I'll give you something you can think about later. You know, think about all your superheroes, think about the supervillains. How many of those supervillains started off by being wronged? 
And that's what turned him into a supervillain. What about Buddy Pine, you know, in The Incredibles? What about Harvey Dent, who becomes Two-Face? What about the Joker? What about Jason in Friday the 13th? If you know all these narratives, or some of these narratives, you probably have some going through your mind also. Those are people that were wrong. They had a legitimate gripe. But it put them on a road, the wrong road. And Jesus is concerned about something similar here, that legitimate gripes can send us in the wrong direction. Number two, you are more than the sum total of your stuff or your possessions. We don't want to think that we are the sum total of our possessions. Verse 14, Jesus says, Take care, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We're like one of those commercials. I remember this Ford Motor Company one when they had this young man by a Ford Ranger, and he's got a surfboard and a bike and all this stuff, just all surrounding the vehicle. And it said something like this. It said, uh, you know, Spence has a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, you have to have everything. And this makes him one happy soul. There's an assumption that you are the sum total of what you have. You are the sum total of what you possess. Jesus says, be careful about that thinking. I want to move quickly. Number three, third idea we need to be careful about is we're not going to live forever and we're not going to take our possessions with us. And that, of course, is part of the heart of this parable. He says, I'm going to eat, drink, relax for many years. God says, you fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus is saying in this parable, You can make all the plans you want with your money. You can picture you and your money happy on a beach. And at the end of the day, you don't know when your time is up. And you're certainly not going to take that stuff with you when it happens. Beware of covetousness, he says. This brings up again that whole idea of Ecclesiastes. This starts off, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The word vanity is an old Hebrew word. It translates a Hebrew word that means transitory, here today, gone tomorrow. I, I, the way I illustrate this is on a cold day when you go outside and you breathe and you, know, you see the, the breath come out and then all of a sudden it disappears into the sky. Or look at a chimney. You, know, that you see the smoke come out and it goes up and then it disappears. It's here today and it's gone the next minute. That's what vanity means. Here today, gone the next minute. I once heard someone say there are no pockets in a shroud. It's true, isn't it? Yeah, I can't take it with you. Read a story about construction workers working on the buildings outside Pompeii uh, where the volcano erupted, and they found a corpse of a woman, and she was caught apparently in a hot rain of ashes, and in her hands were clutched jewels. And the going theory is the woman chose to risk her life by getting those jewels rather than just getting out of the city. You win the jewels, but you lose your life. And this man finds himself in that kind of situation. Last thought is this, greed, the greedy are on the wrong side of history. And this is one of the themes you find in Luke. You're going to find this throughout the gospel of Luke. Who is really on the right side of history? If you're four-fifths of the way through the parable, you're going to say, that's the guy I want to be right there. Look at him. He's got big barns. He's got crops. And look at his neighbors. They didn't do so well. 
four-fifths of the way through the story, every one of us is going to envy the man that has all the money. But when you're all the way through the story, you find out, "Uh, that's not exactly the person I want to be. The greedy are on the wrong side of history. And that's one of the lessons we want to take. You and I are halfway through the story. Maybe we're four-fifths of the way through the story. And we look out into our culture, and you can see people that have a lot of stuff. And again, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of stuff in a disregard for God. There's greed. There's not care for the poor, the hurting people around. And so we're talking about this category of greed. It's very easy to envy the greedy. Some of the Psalms move in this direction. If I was four-fifths of the way through the Wizard of Oz, you know who I want to throw my lot in with? The Wicked Witch, wouldn't you? She has monkeys that can fly. And they seem to be doing a lot of damage. And let's be honest, that looks like a lot of fun. And she has a big castle. And then there's this lady with her four friends, and they're homeless, you know? And they're walking around. I'm throwing my lot in with the witch. But if you go all the way to the end of the story, there's a role reversal. And that's what scripture identifies for the Christian. There is a role reversal that takes place. The weak will be strong. The strong will be weak. The first will be last and the last will be first. And so the greedy here end up on the wrong side of history. We're not there yet in the passage, but I have to at least just put a verse up, tip ourselves in this direction. Where do we find strength against this kind of influence or consumerism? Well, verse 31, and we're not going to get there until we work through the next passage. But our text tells us, seek his kingdom and these things will be added unto you. Matthew puts it this way, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. We're going to get to that passage in a couple weeks. But we remind ourselves today that our focus, where do we find our strength? Our strength is the eternal kingdom of God. Our strength is in Christ not being envious of the world around us, not being envious of this greed, not thinking that we're the sum total of all our stuff. We want to be countercultural. We do not seek first the things of this kingdom. We seek first the things of God's kingdom. And all these things are added unto us. Let's pray together, friends. Father, thank you for your grace, your love. Thank you for caring about us. Work in our hearts and work in our lives. I pray that you deliver us from being under the influence of money. We all worry about this. But we're told not to worry about that. Take no thought of tomorrow, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. So I pray that you would give us the power, the faith, the strength, and the hope to be able to do that. Unlike the man in the parable, help us to be concerned about people around us, hurting people. Not to be greedy and fill the barns, but to use our wealth in a way that brings you the most glory. And certainly that means caring about people around us. So speak to us in a special way and work in our hearts as we close in song. Help us to bring you the glory due to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.